Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with a very special guest, Jesse Walden. Jesse was formerly on the crypto team of A16Z and has now uh, branched out to start his own uh, crypto fund called Variant. Jesse, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So Jesse, you, you've been in the crypto space early. I should uh, be remiss to say that you started a, a company before uh, A16Z uh, Media Chain. What was it called? What was it called? Yeah. yeah, it was called Media Chain. And I was focused on music, music intersection of music and crypto. And your uh, your romantic partner is a is a uh, is an artist as well. So you're you're deep with, with artists. Why don't you talk a little bit about your journey within within the crypto space over the last you know seven years, particularly how your views ha- have evolved. Uh, I, one thing I've known you've evolved for is uh, your idea that maybe decentralized governance isn't as important as decentralized ownership. Why don't you talk a little bit about how your views have evolved uh, when you give sort of a journey, and then we can get to some of the specifics. Okay, cool. Well, maybe it'd be helpful to just sort of start with how I got into crypto in the first place, because because that informs the rest. So in order to tell that story, I do have to go way back to early 2000s. I was a teenager in high school and like most teenagers, pretty involved with piracy, but but probably like an order of magnitude more than 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 your average. So everyone was downloading MP3s on Napster, but I was sort of part of a scene that congregated around FTP servers where in order to have access, your IP address had to be whitelisted. In order to get that access or get that whitelist, you needed to play some functional role in the community. So it was very incentives-driven, and, and in that way, kind of like crypto is today. And so you know, my group was responsible for uh, ripping DVDs and, and sometimes making them available before they were in stores or even in theaters. And you know, my incentive as, as a teenager to participate was if you uploaded... Uh, a movie or uh, you know any file you you got credits to download and and there was every album video game tv show software etc on these ftp servers at a time when you know netflix was mailing dvds uh in, in the snail mail and there was no youtube there was no facebook um so having access to all this content was incredible and then and then shortly after that BitTorrent was invented and and then suddenly anyone with a BitTorrent client could get access to those files uh, which was great and sort of democratized access and, and catalyzed streaming as a as a concept. And then bandwidth and storage got really cheap and you got FileWalker services like Mega Upload and RapidShare. And um, and then suddenly distribution of files moved up to the browser because you could just you do it over HTTP. And that was sort of a really amazing time because all of these music blogs and film blogs and, and things popped up and there was sort of this curation renaissance because anyone could distribute files. And around the same time, because you had, you know, the advent of the cloud, you, you had um, sort of social networks sort of building and pushing that infrastructure forward. And many of those social networks solved the problem that these, um, these protocols that were being used for piracy didn't solve, which is they allowed users to have an identity while also being able to distribute files. So upload your photos to Facebook on your profile, right? And or upload a movie to uh, to YouTube, a song to SoundCloud, and so the the combination of an identity and the means to distribute files was obviously a very powerful idea, and was sort of the basis for for all these uh, social networks, and 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 so that sort of catalyzed the next wave of media distribution. It went from piracy to to platforms, 
Um, and during that sort of transition, I was now out of high school into college and um, got my start in, in, in sort of the business world as a uh, party promoter. And of course, I was using these new social platforms to promote those parties. Um, parties became concerts. And, and uh, you know, I found myself sort of getting deep into the music industry just as, from starting as a fan and, and then sort of professionally. Eventually led, started my own artist management company where the goal was to use um, these new media platforms to help artists reach their fans directly through the internet. Um, and so I think that that's sort of, you know, a straight line through my career is how does media propagate on the internet first through piracy, then through platforms, and then using those platforms to help artists sort of avoid the traditional major label system and, and reach their fans directly. Okay, so, so where does this intersect with crypto? Well, so it's now... 2013 or so, and I learned about Bitcoin. And the thing that resonated with me when I read the Bitcoin white paper was, hey, here's this, this protocol that in a lot of ways is very similar to, to BitTorrent and, and some of the peer-to-peer protocols that came before it. It has a means of, of propagating data in this peer-to-peer network, but it has something that BitTorrent lacked, which is it has an identity system baked in, and that's public-private key cryptography. And the result is that every Bitcoin in the network or every piece of data in the network is attributed back to the, the person that wrote it. And, and that's what allows you to you know, own a Bitcoin independent of the platform um, that you interface with the network through. So that, that was a sort of powerful uh, realization for me because here was a system that allowed you to track a digital asset and attribute it back to its creator anywhere it was distributed. And I thought, hey, what if you could do the same for a different type of asset instead of a financial asset, what about a digital media asset? Um, and that was sort of the spark for media chain. So, you know, having worked with artists for a number of years and, and come, having come face to face with the ways in which they depend on platforms to attribute and monetize their media, I thought, what if artists could be identified or creators could be identified anywhere their media is distributed and through that channel that attribution flowed, value could also flow. So, so that was the spark for Media Chain, um, which I started with my co-founder, Dennis, in 2014. And our goal was to build a universal media library. So an open library with all the world's images, videos, songs, where creators could be discovered through their work anywhere it was distributed. So that, that's, that's the origin story of Media Chain, how I first got into crypto. Now, back, back to your question, what's changed since then? I mean, there's, there's a ton that's changed. The first thing I'll say is back at that at that point, um, there were sort of two dominant narratives in in the space, and the space was not called cryptos; it was called the blockchain space. Um, uh, one narrative was Bitcoin would be the blockchain to rule them all because it would sort of take on these insurmountable network effects, and everything would be built on top of it. And and then the other narrative was that the the cool thing was not Bitcoin, but was the blockchain. And that was much more sort of an enterprise adoption story of, of sort of peer-to-peer databases among large organizations. And we didn't believe either of these stories uh, or narratives at, at the time because there we were sort of building our own network. We were not building it on top of Bitcoin because that was impossible technically for what we wanted to do. And we always imagined Media Chain as sort of a developer platform where anyone could build um, the next big you know, media application on top of this library of content. And so that was a developer adoption story, not an enterprise adoption story. But this again was 2014 and there wasn't a whole lot of developer activity in the space. And so 
you know, what we were seeing back then was a lot of interest inbound from enterprise organizations, one of, one of whom was Spotify, um, that ended up acquiring Media Chain Labs to solve a, a, a sort of painful problem that they had, which was, you know, there is no library of all the information about who wrote a song. And as a result, you know, they, they get sued all the time uh, for not knowing who to pay royalties to. And it's not that they don't want to pay. They do have the royalties ready to go. They just don't know who to pay. And they thought a peer-to-peer solution would, would be the right one. And media chain architecture made a lot of sense for solving that sort of problem. But I'd say one thing that's really changed a ton since back then is the amount of developer activity in the space. So we joined Spotify um, very beginning of 2017. That was right before there was a big run-up in the crypto markets. Um, and that was, you know, sort of a double-edged sword for us because we were sort of kicking ourselves the first week we got to Spotify, the price of Ethereum, I think, went from 80 cents to $80. And so we were like, wow, if we just hung on a little bit longer, you know, there'd be all this interest and market activity. But but the flip side of that was um, that was a really crazy time in the space. And so trying to operate through that period uh, would have also been, I would say, tra- traumatic to say, to say the least. So in, in a sense, glad we, we landed at Spotify and got to sort of reset from first principles. But certainly what that phase of the industry catalyzed was like way more developer interest in, in the space. And now, you know, I think you see there's much better developer tooling, much better infrastructure, and just way more ecosystem activity of developers building on top of, of each other's work. And that was something that was, that was missing a lot from, from, you know, our vision at the time in 2014 to 2016. There was this camp of, of Bitcoin maximalists who said, uh, not only that it would be the dominant protocol for everything. Uh, I, I remember we, we were getting, getting lunch or something and you were saying, that's like saying that there, you know, only TCIP will, will work and there could be no other protocols. But they were saying sort of, you know, that it's, it's money more than it is technology. And we need to look at the history of money uh, more so than we need to look at the history of technology. What, what did they not, or where is sort of the verdict on, on, on sort of Bitcoin maximalism versus, versus Ethereum or other, other sort of basic layer protocols? Yeah. So Bitcoin Maximus, I think, have this view that, you know, that, that there's only one use of a cryptocurrency, and that's sort of a non-sovereign store value. And at A16Z, I think one of the sort of shared views there is that um, crypto is actually a much sort of broader platform for innovation. And, and so I think, like, everyone at A16Z would, cla- would, would classify themselves as sort of, like, innovation maximalist, not, not, you know, Bitcoin maximalist. And innovation maximalist is inclusive of Bitcoin, um, but Bitcoin maximalism is not inclusive of, of other forms of innovation, sort of like Bitcoin was invented and then nothing else can can come after that. Um, and so I definitely don't hold that view. That said, I think, you know, in terms of what, what I think crypto is good for, I, I do think it's sort of along the spectrum of, of value creation and distribution. So there's, you know, non-sovereign store of value um, in the case of Bitcoin. Ethereum is this general purpose sort of computing platform, but I think it's especially well suited to applications concerned with the the sort of movement of value. Um, That's, I think it's very clear. That's one of the key um, applications of blockchains as computers, right? So Chris Dixon has this, this really great way of framing blockchains as a general purpose computing platform where, um, you know, they meet, they meet the very basic definition of, a Turing machine. It's a machine you can sort of give an input to, run a function on that input, get an output and record that output in some state, which is the blockchain. So 
blockchain is a it is a computer by that definition. It's just a virtual computer that runs on physical computers all over the world. And the the way in which blockchain computers are different from from other computers that have come before is that um, they sort of suck on most dimensions. They're slow. They're sort of like inefficient. They're expensive to run, but they're able to offer guarantees that the computations that they do are done correctly. And that's a really important guarantee for applications like digital money or digital gold. And so that's why I think that, you know, the types of applications that are are well suited to being run on blockchain networks are those that require a high degree of, of trust and, and are probably along, along the spectrum of value uh, creation and distribution. Now, I think the that view of blockchains as, as trustworthy computers is correct, but it doesn't really, you know, specify how it will touch the end user. And that's something that I'm, I, I'm really interested in tr- try to spend a lot of time on. And, and there, I think we sort of get back a little bit to your earlier question about um, decentralized governance, for, you know, versus ownership. So one way of, of thinking about the space that I think is interesting is, is to sort of go back to my history with piracy and, and look at how, how, how piracy evolved. So, I touched on BitTorrent earlier. You know, BitTorrent was this technology unlock that I think exposed a latent demand that was impossible to see before the technology made it visible. And and that was, you know, BitTorrent enabled you to access files as if they were already on your hard drive. You could start streaming and you know a a, a movie or a song um, the instant you downloaded it in a BitTorrent client. Little known fact is Daniel Eck, the CEO of Spotify, was CEO of MuTorrent before Spotify. And MuTorrent was one of the biggest BitTorrent clients at that time. So he sort of had a front row seat to what was going on on, on the BitTorrent network. And, you know, there was all this, it was, at one point it was taking up a third of all internet bandwidth. And so he saw, hey, like, there's this real latent demand here. People want to access files now. And when he started Spotify, the goal was to build a product that gave users the experience of every song ever as if it's already on your hard drive. That, you know, clearly was a, was a good idea. And a, a sort of even lesser known fact is that in the earliest days of Spotify, it actually used BitTorrent under the hood because that was the best tool for that job. It was the best way to give users that experience of every song as if it's already on your hard drive. Now, I think the important insight there is you had this technology unlock surface, the latent demand for streaming, but then the, the, the beneficiary of that was, were companies like Spotify and Netflix, which packaged that latent demand into an intuitive product to use. Now the, the parallel in crypto that I think is interesting is Ethereum was, you know, protocol innovation that similarly gave us our unlocked another sort of latent demand, mass latent demand that was impossible to see prior. And I think that was, the 2017 ICO boom, or certainly that's a favorable treatment of the 27 ICO boom. So you you basically saw for the first time, um, you know, retail, you know, everyday internet users um, being able to invest in products and services that they thought they might use every day. At least that was what they were told, right? And of course, there, you know, that attracted a lot of bad actors and, and a lot of the products never ended up shipping. But it was the first time that value proposition was offered to users where you can you can own a piece of the platforms and services you interact with every day. And I think, you know, sure, you could say that that 2017 ICO boom was just about greed. But that's sort of like saying BitTorrent was just about stealing 
that's not that's not really the correct or, or or complete view of what was really going on. I think the reason that there was all this greed and, and hype in the 2017 ICO boom is people are not dumb and they know internet platforms are valuable. They know that the value of those platforms is due to their contributions. And here for the first time was an offer to actually receive some of that value and be aligned with the platform as it grows. Um, and of course, Bitcoin and Ethereum are, are the first very clear examples of that. And I think that, you know, many more community driven platforms will, will follow suit. So one thing I think is interesting about um, blockchain computers and, and tokens in particular as an application is, you know, it, tokens are this technology innovation that turns value into packets, um, just like BitTorrent turned, you know, movies into packets that you could stream. And so the cost of distributing them and moving them around really fast and really granularly is, is basically zero. And as a result, I think you can start to, to sort of action upon this latent demand that was expressed in 2017 and, and products and services built with economic collaboration with their communities in mind from first principles, I think is a really exciting opportunity for crypto to start touching end users or start touching the end user experience. Effectively, you know, ownership of the platform becomes part of the product experience. And I think, I think that's a really powerful idea. And this is why you're so excited about co-ops, right? Or sort of what crypto can do to co-ops is sort of make them feasible. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, I think like co-ops are good historical analogy for, for crypto networks. So, you know, cooperatives are a sort of like classical legal structure, different way of organizing uh, a, a company. So instead of uh, a company being owned by shareholders, it's owned by members and um, members can sort of define the rules of the company. Um, very often, you know, met the members decide, Hey, this, this cooperative um, is not going to be profit maximizing. Instead, it, it, it's going to serve our interests, whatever, whatever they define those interests as. So for example, like REI is a big outdoor, you know, goods manufacturer and retailer. It's a cooperative and, and the members, you know, decide that, Number one, they want to take care of the environment. Number two, any profits that the company makes from, from selling its goods are going to be redistributed to the members as a, as a function of how much they spend every year at the cooperative. And so, and so that's like a really interesting organizational structure because it enables the organization to remain aligned with its members even as it grows. Whereas, you know, traditional corporations have the singular mandate of extracting uh, profit for shareholders. That's, that's the concept of shareholder primacy. So that, that's, I think, the keystone difference between cooperatives and, and corporations. And crypto networks are similar to cooperatives in that they, too, are community-owned and operated. And as a result, they sort of, number one, they, they you know, distribute value back to their members. And, and number two, they can um, remain aligned with users as they grow because if they diverge from, from that alignment in any way, the fact that they're open source allows uh, the community to sort of react and, and, and fork off and, and govern the thing the way that they want it to be governed. And, and you see this happening just this past week, the Tron, Justin Sun and, and Tron, the Tron Foundation, which is sort of a, you know, a large cap crypto network, tried to acquire a smaller blockchain, uh, Steemit, and, um, the community rebelled against this and, and decided, you know, we don't want to be acquired by this, you know, this, this foundation that we have nothing to do with. And so they actually just forked off um, 
the, bo- the whole blockchain and said, you know, we're all we're all going over to this fork. So you, you can't acquire it. So that, I think that's a good example of, you know, the community coming together to, to govern the thing as they see, you know, fit for their their interests. So all that to say, I think I think cooperatives are a good analogy for crypto networks. They're both community owned and operated organizations. But the key, you know, one key difference is, is historically cooperatives, I think, have been encumbered by the complexity of organizing in this way. So, you know, it's not a vanilla Delaware C-Corp. There's, there's much more nuance to governing a cooperative successfully. And a lot of that nuance is captured in legal documents. So it, it's hard if you're trying to get a cooperative off the ground, you have to spend all this money on lawyer bills to, um, you know, to, to, to get your governance right, because your bylaws are very custom. And so it's, it's been expensive and it doesn't really scale well to, to large groups. But um, with crypto, the opportunity is to sort of take all that logic of, of how you govern the organization and turn it into code. And as a result, it's, it's far more lightweight, easy to distribute and scale. It, it's sort of like, you know, what, what we've done with marketplaces and, and all kinds of other, you know, sort of legacy services and in, in turning them into uh, Internet services. They've, they've scaled much better, much bigger. And, and we now have the opportunity to, to do that to the very organizational structures that coordinate these large internet platforms themselves. Yes. We can turn those into code too. So what, what, uh, paint, paint me a picture here a little bit. So what Spotify was to Napster, what is that to the ICO? Yeah, so I think it, it's a great question. And I think we're still scratching the surface of what that looks like. But, you know, I think the, the some, some early examples um, that are happening right now, I, I think a, g- a good one is is Compound, which is a money market protocol. So it's, not, it's obviously it's not Spotify. It's a different kind of marketplace, but it's a marketplace that coordinates lenders and borrowers. And um, it runs as a smart contract on Ethereum. And at the outset, the smart contract was built by Compound, a you know, traditional Delaware C-Corp company. They built the smart contract. They built an interface on top of it. And that interface looks very much like, you know, a Web2 product that, that would be intuitive for most users to use. That interface was sort of the first, you know, way to interact with this protocol. But today you've got an ecosystem of, of you know, 10, 20 different third-party companies building on top of, of that canonical smart contract that Compound the company built. And as a result of all these sort of integrations sitting on top, there's now a pretty good network effect of liquidity in this marketplace of borrowers and lenders. And, and just like traditional marketplaces sort of build defensibility through liquidity and network effects, Compound has done the same and is now, I think, in a good position to, to um, charge a fee. You know, just like Airbnb charges a fee or, or Uber charges a fee in, in their marketplace. So the business model is kind of similar. But the key difference is who benefits from that business model, right? So you've got this fee stream. What do you do with it? Well, you know, it could just go back to the company, but I don't, that, that may not be the best use of the fee stream. Another idea might be to take that fee stream and actually distribute it to the parties that are contributing to the network effects that makes compound valuable in the first place. So you might take that fee stream and distribute it to those third-party developers who are, you know, contributing liquidity to the protocol. And in doing so, you would sort of align their incentives with the protocol itself, and, and they'd be, you know, then in, incentivized to keep contributing liquidity over time. And as a result of, of sort of giving your community ownership, you could imagine the compound protocol continuing to grow 
automated and it's much better to have, you know, met, you know, a whole ecosystem of developers com contributing to it as opposed to just this one company. So community owned and operated networks like, like compound as an example, I think could stand to be much bigger, much more defensible than sort of their web two counterparts, which are just a single, single company. So, so I think that's what it may look like um, or one example of what it may look like. And, and I do think that this concept of community owned and operated networks is, is a very horizontal one. I think it can play out across many different verticals where, you know, the money market marketplace I just described is just one of those. Yeah. It's interesting you mentioned defensibility uh, there because, you know, typically web two startups are often defensible by their, you know, sort of data network effects um, and uh, that they close them off. Whereas in crypto, that, that's more open source. And so defensibility seems that it's more like brand or, or community driven. And I'm curious how you think about defensibility. I'm also curious how you think about uh, value capture, you know, because Dropbox was able to, you know, uh, lock in people to their service and charge them and, and create choke points along the way. Whereas if Filecoin is, you know, saving so much value, value presumably they'd be a lot less valuable uh, than than Dropbox. I'm curious how you think about defensibility and value capture. Yeah. Well, so I, I think it's I think it's actually kind of it's pretty similar to Web two. And you're right. You know, you're right that um, crypto networks are are open source. They're open source by necessity because that's that's the way you're able to sort of engender trust that the computation is is being done correctly. And and so of course, given that they're open source, you can fork the code, right? But it's important to keep in mind that the code itself is not really what's valuable, right? Like so, classic classic example. Think of like you know. Uh, open source code library, something like MongoDB, right? The, co the code itself is free, but MongoDB Inc. is a valuable company because they take that code and they instantiate it as a running service, right? And it's the running service that ends up capturing value or being valuable. Um, a database with nothing in it isn't worth anything, but a database filled with users and their data starts to become, you know, a, a valuable service that um, developers can build on top of and, 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 you know, network effects can be built around, right? Each new entry in the database increases the value of the database for everyone else, presumably, or each new user of a social network increases the value for, for all other users. And so live running services are the foundation for value capture in Web2. And crypto networks are live running services. They are open source code, but they are running instances of that open source code. So you can fork the code but that's not where the value is. The value is in the community that's interacting with that live running service. Um, and that's why I think we've seen many, there's been many forks of Bitcoin, but you know, there's still the canonical instance of Bitcoin that most people interact with. So some of the defensibility of, you know, in crypto networks comes from brand, as you mentioned, and, and sort of the Lindy effect of that brand being around and, and being tested and true. Um, but then there's also the softer stuff, like all the integrations, right? Like how are you going to coordinate all of the third-party services that have integrated with this canonical instance of a service um, to, to move to the fork, right? It's not, it's, there's less friction than, than, than forking Facebook because their code is proprietary, um, but there's still non-zero friction. And so whatever that, that friction is, is a, introduces a switching cost, right? And my, my view is that whatever the switching cost is, creates a margin that can be extracted. And, and, and so network effects equal switching costs, equal margin equals value capture. That's sort of the formula for crypto networks. And the value capture may be less um, than Web2 because the switching costs are less, but they're non-zero um, and, and, and that's okay. I think you know, the, the idea that you can take 
that margin and redistribute it to the community means that you don't need to extract as much value. You can build a sustainable service that you know covers its costs and, and redistributes any excess to, to the community members directly, which in turn makes the service even more defensible because the users have a stake in, in continuing to see it succeed. Yeah. So we won't see things necessarily as big as Facebook today, but it's still big. And also in theory, if everyone, you know, hated Facebook, they wouldn't be stuck there. They'd have you know, some switching costs, but less switching costs that they'd be able to, to fork over much easier. Yeah, I think, I think it's those two things and they're different, right? Like the, the, the latter statement is, yeah, you can leave if you don't like it. And, and that, to the, to the example I described earlier, we, we've seen that happen a number of times and that's a good thing, I think, for, for community members. But the, the flip side is, you know, you, you can have, to your, to your point that, you know, the value capture may be less, that, that doesn't necessarily mean that investment returns or the, the value for founders um, is, is necessarily less because, while you know you may extract less value from the network, you you could also theoretically build networks that are much bigger than their Web two counterparts because you're giving some of that value to the community members directly, and that gives them skin in the game to to you know see the platform succeed. So you know Bitcoin doesn't have a marketing department; they don't have that cost, yeah. or the network doesn't have that cost because the community members do that work, right? So um, you you need you simultaneously need to extract less value but can also build bigger networks at lower cost. Um, and, and I think that's a really powerful idea. It means that you can have more value through scale, but with less extraction. Totally. Another idea I want to segue to, we've explored in our conversations the last couple of years have been sort of ISAs and personal tokens. Uh, and really something you've thought a lot about is uh, sort of debt versus equity. Why don't you sort of share a little bit of what, you, what you've learned there and what's your mental model for it? Yeah, so this is also, I think, very much informed by conversations I've had with, with Chris Dixon. So I want to want to give him credit where it's due. I think like a, a good framework for thinking about debt versus equity is how how much information and trust each of them require. So you know, a, a debt contract is a much simpler type of arrangement. It's sort of like you know, I will lend you this money and you pay me back with interest. And if you don't pay me back, I'm coming for everything you've got. And 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 you know. In countries where there's good rule of law, that's that's you know pretty straightforward. Although right now that's all you know kind of an influx. But in in normal times, a debt contract is a very simple contract, and so it requires relatively little information to to issue a loan and, and give someone credit or to determine their credit creditworthiness. Equity, on the other hand, is is much more complicated, right? Because the capital in the relationship doesn't have this same sort of recourse. They don't get to say, hey, if you don't pay me, if I don't make a return on my investment, I'm coming for everything you've got. It's more of a partnership. You're more sort of aligned with um, with whomever it is you're, you're investing in and buying equity from. And so it re- that type of arrangement requires way more information and, and way more trust, right, in the partner. Like one, one interesting thing to think about is, you know, how the economy might evolve given the fact that today we have the internet, there's, you know, a, a way to move information very cheaply. Um, and, and now we have, we have blockchain computers where you can trust that the computation that, they, that they're doing is, is being done correctly. So you can sort of audit, uh, you know, all the code and say, oh yeah, this, you know, this thing is going to, you know, do what it says it's going to do. So you, so you can gain trust that way. And so it's, it's sort of now possible to imagine you could, you could have, um, you know, applications, organizations built on this infrastructure 
where because they're completely open source, there's lots of information, and their code is run in this trustworthy way, it's much easier to, to have sort of equity relationships um, with all kinds of, of, of organizations, maybe even individuals, at a really granular level, where it just didn't make sense to, to finance things in that way prior, because the amount of the bar to information and trust was too high. So, so many of the like economic arrangements that are today debt arrangements could end up becoming equity arrangements, and I think that gets into you know ISAs, where today like much much of student you know college financing is is financed through debt, but potentially in the future um, built on you know built on this infrastructure you could have more equity-like arrangements like income share agreements. So to make that more concrete, like imagine you've got, um, you've got a, a Lambda School graduate who is, is now you know, in the workforce as, a, as an engineer um, and they're getting paid, say, in U.S. dollars, but those U.S. dollars are, are coming to them through a USD token on the Ethereum blockchain, right? So you, you can audit their income or, you know, in a verifiable way, you can see exactly how much they earn when, when it's going to, you know, hit their, their wallet based on these smart contracts that are, that are going to run as specified. Well, you've got a lot more trust there and, and information there than, than you had in the legacy world where, you know, you, you, you that, that all of those uh, transactions are happening on, on some opaque infrastructure that you have no visibility into. So it might, you know, it theoretically is you know, possible to get comfortable um, you know, backing this person, um, given, given that, you know, higher or that, sorry, that lower bar to, uh, information and trust that you get from, from blockchains. I was going to ask where are we at with personal tokens, uh, where, 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 you know, and what do you see for that moving forward? Yeah, it's, I, you know, it's, it, it's, a, it's an interesting idea. I think I, I think I'm, um, I'm more in the camp that, um, like specific types of arrangements, can work both in ISAs and in, in personal token world. So I think, I think personal tokens are um, it, it, the idea of, that a person can have a, a market tied to shares of themselves. And, and those, those tokens, you know, can be redeemed for, um, for whatever the person specifies. It could be, you know, a slice of their income. It could be um, you get to vote on what they have for dinner. And, and not all of these interaction models will work, but some of them will, right? Um, and, and right now, it's not entirely clear uh, which ones will be first, but I, I do tend to think that they'll be around sort of income splitting. And, and one of the most interesting examples here is um, NBA player uh, Spencer Dinwiddie on the Brooklyn Nets just to- recently tokenized his contract. And um, I think it's $35 million player salary, and, and you can buy a share in it um, upfront. And it's sort of, so he's sort of like issuing a, a bond. Um, for, for his salary. It's, it's, it's very similar to what David Bowie did in the eighties um, with, with Bowie bonds, though that was sort of done through on the legacy stack and, and Spencer Dinwiddie's doing it on, uh, on, on Ethereum. Um, and so I think, I think that kind of model will, will likely be a common one to start, but then we'll, 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 we'll probably see all kinds of experimentation with, with alternate interaction models. Um, like there's friend Ruben issued a token that's redeemable for an hour of his time as a, he's a lawyer. So an hour of his time, not legal advice, but just sort of general consulting. And, and that I think is, you know, it's an alternate model. Um, but, but the question there is, you know, how many people want to sell their time on a, on a free marketplace where the price can go up and down versus control the, you know, the value of their time and control who can, who can claim, claim it. Um, 
and 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 so I think a lot of these things need to be worked out still, and it, it's sort of unclear. I'm I'm not. Um, I'd say on personal tokens, I'm I'm uh, I'm I'm a little bit skeptical that um, there's going to be you know every flavor under the sun, and, and I'm 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 looking for that one interaction model that's repeatable, uh-huh. um, and we haven't seen it yet. What are the things that you're most uh, the opposite hopeful about or or eager to see? Like, what's your request for 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 startups or applications uh, or use cases? on top of some of this new technology? Yeah, so I think um, I think basically what I look for and, and, and what I want to see more founders doing is sort of approaching the space from a product first point of view. So like, you know, last 15, 20 years of, of Silicon Valley learned very, very much that you need to build a product that people want and, and start from there. And, and I think, you know, there's been so much technology innovation in crypto in such a short amount of time um, and, and that's great, and it provides a new foundation. But there, but in in that sort of flurry of tech innovation, I think the space has sort of lost touch with the, the end user, and we need to start focusing on that again. And so, what I look for are sort of product driven teams that are sort of thinking about marketplaces or community driven networks. You know, networks where people contribute the value to the service, um, and then from first principles, look for ways to reward that community economically for their contributions. Um, and so, you know, I think the difference between what I'm describing and say web two platforms where, um, users maybe have some sort of revenue share is that, um, in, in many of those web two platforms, revenue share was an afterthought, right? It was something that you added once the platform got to scale, once you you know, you had power users that were threatening to leave, you, you worked out some revenue share arrangement for them. Um, but what I'm most interested in are sort of products and services that are community driven from the outset and where the community members are there because they own a piece of the platform from day one. And, you know, again, I think Bitcoin, Ethereum, crypto networks are are only the first examples of of community driven platforms owned and operated by their users. But given the right tools, I think many more uh, communities, potentially every subreddit can build their own community owned and operated platform. Um, and so we need the tools to do it. And then we also need the platforms and, and product driven founders to sort of um, execute that playbook. Totally. One of the things you, you've, you've coined is this concept of crypto adjacent startups. So talk about that because, you know, the things I've been most excited about ISA, you know, prediction markets, you know, some of this dynamic price, you, you know, we're talking uh, fractionalization. Does it even require crypto? Uh, so is the idea that it, the infrastructure isn't yet ready for it, but it will soon? Or how do you think about this? Yeah. And so, so I think like, my definition of crypto adjacent is is what is sort of what I just described earlier, which is it's 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 um, startups that are sort of heating the insights emerging from the crypto space, namely community ownership, community you know operation, um, and say and sort of how the product evolves and making that a core part of the product experience. That's that's what crypto adjacent means to me. Um, and then there's a question, which is, does a, that kind of startup need to run on top of a blockchain or not? And there, I think. You know, just like Spotify used BitTorrent under the hood in the early days, it, I think that crypto networks are probably the right tool for the job here. They do, it's the right stack. If you want to distribute value, like we distribute bits of information at very low cost, then crypto is the right stack to do that, right? Because trying to, to do that over the legacy financial stack is, is cumbersome and it's, it's, it's expensive and not permissionless to, to innovate on. And so I tend to think that you know, crypto adjacent startups may start product first. They may start sort of, you know, with with um, building a great product experience and abstracting all the infrastructure that's under the hood. But technically, 
I, I do believe crypto networks are the right tool for the job. And, and so I think that, that a lot of this, you know, adja- adjacent innovation will end up moving on, on sort of the new rails that crypto offers. Give us a minute on, on central bank uh, digital currency and dollarization. I didn't even think about that. Yeah. So, so I think one of the interesting phenomenons um, over the last year is like you, you've seen all these um, stablecoin projects come out. You, there's, you know, different flavors. There's um, dollar backed stablecoins like USDC, where there's literally a physical or, you know, cash dollar in a bank account somewhere for every token that represents that dollar on, on the blockchain. And then there's, you know, completely decentralized ones like Maker, um, which uh, use other crypto assets as, as collateral um, and, and, you know, create stable assets against those um, volatile crypto assets un, under the hood. Um, and, and, and then there's projects like Libra and Celo, which, you know, are their own blockchains with their sort of own mechanisms for stability. But all, all these point to solving a problem that, that I think is an important one in the crypto space, which is volatility. Like there's tons of the market's very volatile. And as a result, it's hard to onboard people to the space. Um, and, and one of the opportunities I think with, with sort of tokenized dollars is access to dollars for people who can't get them locally. And, and, you know, that can take many forms it could be, um, you know, you want to earn in a currency that that's more stable than your own. So mechanic, Amazon mechanical Turk worker, and, you know, you, you want to hold dollars because it's more stable than whatever currencies is local. And, uh, tokenization of dollars makes it easier and cheaper for you to do that because you don't need a U.S. bank account. You can just use a crypto wallet. So, so I think one of the surprising and, and interesting things going on is demand for tokenized dollars is, is is proving to be a real thing. And and with all the volatility in in the traditional financial markets and the crypto markets going on right now in in, in this COVID craze, um, there's actually been a huge increase in demand for for stable coins, and and that's probably driven by speculation. Um, but it's highlighting that you know, stable dollar tokens are, are sort of as valuable, you know, store of value as, as traditional dollars as a safe haven asset um, off chain. And so I think we're going to see like over the next year, um, this trend sort of really accelerate and there, and there start to be more and more adoption of dollars as, as sort of stable currency, uh, reserve currency, which it already is, but where way more people can get access to it because the cost of, of using these rails is, is far lower than the cost of using the traditional banking system. Um, and, and, and so that, that's pretty exciting because it, it means that crypto penetration, crypto adoption um, isn't driven by some like crazy volatile asset that people don't really know or trust. It's driven by the U.S. dollar. And, and, and I think that's a really good sort of on-ramp um, you know, for folks that already hold the dollar in high regard and can can reason about it. So suddenly everyone gets a crypto wallet in order to get dollars. And then you can start to put all kinds of other crypto assets into that wallet, um, including, for example, ownership of, of, of a product or service that you contribute to. So 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 dollars may end up being the the way that many people experience crypto to start, and it may be the way that um that, that people start to experience ownership of, of services that they use every day through crypto assets that that are you know denominated in dollars. Last question. Uh, you've written about progressive decentralization. Where basically, in the beginning, there was this idea that it was important uh, important to decentralize governance and you know, decentralize all the things. And then I think over time, we sort of stopped caring about that element of it. What, did we just realize it was hard or we realized that centralized systems for governance can work really well? Or what was the learning there? And then the second part of the question, lastly, uh, is uh, what's your sort of unique insight on business models uh, in crypto and, and our mental model for them? Yeah, so on, on progressive decentralization, yeah, I think... 
you know, it's the, the, the basic idea is that there's like sort of three key stages to building a, a product in crypto. Stage one is again, you got to build a product people want. If, if, if you don't do that, like there's, there's no value um, to capture. There, there's no way you're going to sustain a community. So build a product you want. So stage two is once you have a product and, and you're starting to, you know, maybe have some network effects around that product, hopefully you're developing a community alongside them. Um, and, and the community are, are those that are, you know, generating the network effects. The, this is, you know, classic startup playbook, build a product, build a community. Next, next stage in the playbook is, is a bit different. And that is to turn ownership of the product or service over to the community. And I think that's, that's the thing that's new in crypto. Um, and, and um, I think, unfortunately, a lot of products have, have done executed this playbook in the wrong order. So 2017, you know, people started with step three, which is distribute ownership of this thing that we haven't even built yet through an ICO, right? So that distributing ownership is, is not the right place to start because then you, you then have to work backwards from there to build the, you know, building a, a community and then building a product. And designing a, a product by committee is generally not a good idea in my, in my view. So you want to start product first, you know, lean team, execute quickly, like rapid iteration. And, and there you don't want the community involved in decision-making or governance. You want to just move quickly. And, and build something people want. Once you once you validated the product works and you have product market fit, then you can start to involve the community um, in decision making to some degree. Um, but but probably more importantly, you want to give them real economic alignment um, and through ownership in uh, of the product or service. And and so I think the, the playbook is to to start product first and then progressively decentralize ownership of the product to the community. And, and with that could come, um, you know, community decision making. But but I think, um, you know, organizing large groups of people to make decisions collectively is, you know, not a problem that cryptography solves. It's it's a very human problem. And so, you know, I, I think we'll we'll get lots of experiments and how decisions are made in community owned organizations because it's much easier to iterate on that decision making process now that you know the code it's code. It's not. Um, it's not legal contracts. That said, I think a good place to start is probably tested and true decision-making processes. For example, you know, delegation, like the most successful cooperatives at, at scale, and there are a number of them that are you know, multi-billion dollar organizations, they have a traditional management structure with a CEO and a COO, and, and, and those, those execs answer to the owners, which are, are the community members that, that own the, the, the product or, or company or cooperative. So, so I think we'll likely land on, on something similar to start where, you know, products are owned by their communities, but they still have sort of hierarchical leadership and you don't really need to decentralize um, all decision making to every node in the network because, you know, people don't have a time or appetite for that. I think a, a good quote here um, that I picked up from, from Brad at USV is an Oscar Wilde quote that, you know, the problem with socialism is it takes up too many evenings. And, and I think that, you know, the same is probably true in terms of, you know, large scale collective decision making in crypto networks. You, you probably want to delegate that decision making to, um, to to some expert. And so long as that there's a check and balance in place. So that if they if they, uh, you know, move against your your intent or your interest, you, you can replace them. Do you have a hot take for how crypto will disrupt VC? Are we going to have you know, I think, cap tables? Yeah. So, so I think like in, in the long run. There, there will be some disruption, but it's not going to be as dramatic as, as some were predicting in 2017, where like, you know, there, some were saying it's going to eliminate it completely. 
I think it could, it could change the, the dynamics of VC. So for so earlier we touched on that idea that crypto networks are, are less extractive than corporate owned networks because they're you know they're community owned and operated and so they don't need to you know return a profit to shareholders. They just need to be sustainable and, and sort of reward their communities commensurate with the, the the value they contribute. Right. So they're less extractive. That that could mean that the role for VC is to to get to be in earlier and to invest it at valuations that maybe are slightly lower. And that's because the exit for um, for these types of startups may be um, to the community rather than to a, you know, a, a large group of third party shareholders who are sort of indifferent to um, to, to whether the, the, they use the platform or not. So, you know. A classic IPO is to shareholders that are profit maximizing, whereas um, you know a successful crypto network is owned and operated by the, the community members that um, that use the service. So, could it could mean that VCs uh, come in earlier to help the product get built and get off the ground, but ultimately see the the exit as one that that is to the community, and that's at potentially a lower valuation to start because the the, the community is is not seeking to maximize profits, right? Um, so maybe lower multiples. Is there anything else you want to say from your blog post on uh, business models? On business models, no. I think I think we covered we covered business models. I, I think yeah. The, the key the key idea with business models in crypto is that the business model is familiar. These are crypto networks are marketplaces, right? The, you know, Bitcoin is um, a marketplace between you know people who want to store and transfer value and, and miners that secure the ledger of those value transfers. So there, there's demand and supply on, on, on both sides of crypto networks. And, and that demand and supply creates network effects through you know liquidity in the marketplace. When you have network effects, you have switching costs. When you have switching costs, you're able to extract a margin. And so the, the model is to charge a fee, just like marketplaces charge a fee. So every Bitcoin transaction, come, you have to uh, send it with a fee attached. Every Ethereum function that you run, you have to pay gas. That's also a fee. At the application layer, Compound, the lending market protocol we covered, and Uniswap, a, a sort of exchange, they all have fees. So the business model is familiar. What's new is what you do with that fee stream. So instead of it going to shareholders, it's going to community members that actually contribute value to the protocol. And, and that's what creates a virtuous loop that further enforces the network effect of, of these of, of these uh, marketplaces because those that provide the value are actually getting some of it and are, are incentivized to stay there. Anything we didn't get to cover that you wanted to cover or any plugs for Variant that we should uh, we should close with? So, so to my point earlier about sort of how we disrupt, you know, how, how crypto is likely to disrupt VC, I, I think Variant is um, is sort of strategically sized for this opportunity. So it's a, it's a small fund focusing on very early stage founders, core insight being that, you know, crypto networks move or, you know, crypto adjacent founders will move to turn ownership over to the community. And um, as a result, if, if you want to, you know, play as a VC in this space, you need to back founders early, you know, and 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 sort of assume that, after say series a the, the likely next step is um liquid token that community members own and and so you, you have to play earlier and that's what i'm trying to do with variant my guest today has been jesse walden a variant i've been trying to get on him on for a few years and he he did not disappoint uh jesse thank you so much for a fantastic episode thanks for having me If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.